Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Cheryl Selman, and welcome to What Women Must Know. This is a show dedicated to empowering you with truthful information so you can make the best decisions regarding your health and well-being. And I firmly believe how important it is to get educated and to learn more and to have an open mind. So we really discover the possibilities that are available to us for our well-being, for our healing journey. So, again, thank you for joining me. I have another great conversation in store for you. <clears throat> and, uh, and let's just jump in. So we're talking about ending Parkinson's disease, a prescription for action with Dr. Ray Dorsey. And... Um, let me just say, say a little bit about um, Dr. Ray Dorsey. He is the David M. Levy Professor of Neurology at the University of Rochester. Ray is working to identify and eliminate the root causes of Parkinson's disease. His research on brain diseases and digital health has been published in leading academic journals and featured in multiple news outlets. In 2020, Ray and his colleagues wrote Ending Parkinson's Disease, a book that provides a prescription for ending the world's fastest growing brain disease. Ray previously directed the Movement Disorders Division and Neurology Telemedicine at Johns Hopkins and worked as a consultant for McKinsey and Company. In 2015, the White House recognized him as a champion for change for Parkinson's disease. His groundbreaking book, Ending Parkinson's Disease, is a critical exploration that sheds light on this global health crisis. So, having said all of that, it's such a, a delight and a pleasure to welcome Dr. Ray Dorsey to the show. So, Ray, so good to have you here. Thank you for coming and sharing your important work on what women must know. Thank you very much for having me, and thank you for empowering the voice of women. Oh, you're so welcome. Yeah, it's been my thing for a long time. So, uh, uh, you know, I, I think that's um, important work to be done. Um Gosh, you know, you're, you have an interesting trajectory for your career, Ray. Um, and I'm, I'm always curious to ask people in uh, the beginning of these conversations, what, what, what were some of those pivotal moments in your life that, first of all, directed you to be a doctor, but then um, initiated this passion to find solutions and a deeper understanding of the causes behind well, I'm the offspring of two psychiatrists, so I like to say I rebelled and I became a neurologist. Um, <laughs> and then I, for the last 15 years, almost 20 years, I've been caring for people with Parkinson's disease. And then as an academic, I had the gift of a sabbatical in which about five years ago, and I started reading a lot of work of a, of a woman, uh, Dr. Caroline Tanner, a neurologist at University of California, San Francisco. And she had, over the last 25 years, detailed numerous environmental factors, including uh, certain pesticides and a widely used dry cleaning chemical called trichloroethylene that were likely the causes uh, or certainly risk factors for uh, Parkinson's disease. And in writing our book, I increasingly have come to the conclusion that Parkinson's disease is a preventable disease in the vast majority of cases, and it's fueled by three environmental toxicants, one, air pollution, two, certain pesticides, and three, commonly used dry cleaning chemicals that contaminate our environment all around us. And, you know, when bad things happen to people, it's uh, it's sad and it's disappointing, and that happens a lot uh, uh, in medicine. 
But when bad things happen to people that are preventable, I think we should sit up, take notice, and take action and prevent that from ever happening to people. Absolutely. And uh, maybe we can begin the conversation by defining uh, Parkinson's disease for people. Sure. So Parkinson's disease was a disease uh, first described about 200 years ago by a, a surgeon named Dr. James Parkinson in England. And its classical features are four. Uh, one is a tremor or shaking, usually in the hands, usually asymmetric, worse on one side than the other. Second is slowness in movement, which is uh, almost found in every person with uh, Parkinson's disease. Third is stiffness. And fourth is difficulties with uh, balance and walking. Those are the cardinal or the classic features of the disease. We now know that there are many other symptoms of the disease, everything from loss of smell and constipation to depression and anxiety, but that's an overview of what is now the world's fastest-growing brain disease. Now, I found this statistic, and you can correct me if it's wrong, it says that this disease, Parkinson's, affects um, now affects 1 million Americans, and every day 10,000 Americans turn 65 and up to 1 in 15 of them will develop Parkinson's disease, something like that. Yeah, that's a, is, that, is that accurate? Yeah, that's accurate. There's probably about 1.2 million Americans now. Uh, today, 200 Americans were diagnosed with the disease, and 100 Americans uh, died with Parkinson's disease. Today, it's now the 14th leading cause of death in the country and rising rapidly. How do you die from Parkinson's disease? What happens in the body? Yeah, well, so, you know, people, first of all, people who are diagnosed with Parkinson's, early Parkinson's, people can live long and productive lives. So that's the good news. We've seen people like Michael J. Fox, you know, battle Parkinson's disease now for three decades, and he's written three books and starred in two TV shows at least, won an Oscar, uh, all since having uh, Parkinson's disease. We've seen Janet Reno, the first, I think she's the first female attorney general, actually served with uh, Parkinson's disease. We've had senators and congressmen uh, serve with uh, Parkinson's disease. We've had people play a uh, season the NBA basketball with Parkinson's disease. We have people had do walks in space with uh, Parkinson's disease. So people with Parkinson's disease, it's not the end of their life. Um, it's just a new chapter. But the problem is after 10, 15, 20 years of Parkinson's disease, it takes a very, very, very heavy toll on individuals, on their families, their friends, their caregivers, and their communities. And so late in the d disease, people can develop trouble swallowing. So um, we're constantly swallowing our secretions, and sometimes we swallow those, and they, instead of going into our stomach, they go into our lung, and that can lead to pneumonia. Uh, people with Parkinson's are prone to fall, and uh, falls can lead to head trauma and um, broken hips, all of which, which carry a significant risk of uh, death with them. So there are lots of ways that individuals, especially with advanced Parkinson's disease, can actually die from the condition. So is this defined as a motor neuron disease? So classically, it's defined as a neurological disease. Um, but in 2003, a really smart German pathologist named Heiko Brock put forth a hypothesis. And his hypothesis was that Parkinson's disease doesn't begin in the brain, that Parkinson's disease is fundamentally not a brain disease, that Parkinson's disease begins outside the brain. And he said it begins either likely in the gut uh, or in the nose. And if you recall those three environmental risk factors that we talked about initially, air pollution, um, certain pesticides, and dry cleaning chemicals, all those things can be inhaled. And we know one of the earliest features of Parkinson's is loss of smell. We know that the pathology of Parkinson's is uh, almost always found in the smell centers of the brain. 
Um, and we also know that those same uh, environmental toxicants, many of them are ingested. So we can swallow uh, pesticides and contamin you know, contaminated well water, for example. Um, in the 1980s, one-third of American cities had their water contaminated with this dry cleaning chemical. It's the same chemical that's at the marine base Camp Lejeune. Um, and that can also uh, be another port of entry for Parkinson's disease actually beginning in the gut. So even though we think of Parkinson's disease as primarily a brain disease, it actually might begin in the nose or, or the gut, suggesting that the environment might be responsible for the vast majority of cases of the disease. That's, that's so interesting because of that profound gut-brain connection, too, how the gut is, is uh, what happens in the gut can affect and move up into the brain, as we now are realizing. There, yeah, there's actually a superhighway that connects the gut uh, to the brain, and it's called the vagus nerve. It's one of the longest nerves in the body. So it goes from, like, the base of your uh, brain, like, I think your upper part of your neck, and then goes all the way into your gut. It goes to your heart. It goes to your lungs. It goes to a large number of organs in your body. And so if, you know, say you're ingesting a pesticide, it might lead to misfolding of a protein that's implicated in Parkinson's disease. And it's past possible that the misfolded protein that begins in the gut can then take that superhighway, uh, the vagus nerve, from the gut up to the brain and then spread to different parts of the brain, producing the symptoms that we classically associate with the disease. Worth noting that one of the earliest features of Parkinson's, we mentioned loss of smell. Another early feature of the disease is constipation. Both these things happen years or decades before people develop the, the tremor that's associated with the disease. Um, and both of these suggest that the gut and or the nose could be a port of entry for the disease. So when this was discovered 200 years ago, um, there weren't the degree of um, poisonous chemicals in the environment back then, although I guess there, 200 years ago in England, there, it was a pretty toxic place with all the industry going on. Yeah. So, uh, so what, what was Dr. Parkinson seeing on, on the streets of London? Um, he said, I'm describing a condition that's not been classified in the, in the medical literature. He says, I'm describing something essentially new when he described six people with the disease. turns out the first person he described with was actually a gardener. And although synthetic pesticides like DDT and the like weren't really developed until World War II and beyond, plants produce their own pesticides because um, they don't want to be eaten by insects. And it turns out that in England, chrysanthemums are grown and chrysanthemum, chrysanthemums produce a class of pesticides called uh, pyrethines, which are linked to Parkinson's disease. So my pure speculation is that the first person ever described with the disease might have gotten his Parkinson's disease from exposure to naturally occurring pesticides when he was working in the garden. Uh, you know that's rare. Um, I don't want any, I want all of the gardeners to get all upset uh, now. So uh, don't use uh, man-made pesticides. But I wouldn't worry too much about uh, working in the garden. But um, yeah. what was really going on in London 1817 was air pollution. And if you people know about the London fog, and people who've watched the TV series The Crown know that in the 19, early 1950s, when Winston Churchill was still prime minister, there was something called the Great Smog in London. And that led to mass hospitalizations, led to 12,000 deaths, um, and you couldn't even see across the street during the daylight. Uh, the smog was so bad. In 1800 London, the air quality was twice as bad as it was in 1950 London. 
it was actually uh, as bad as it is in cities like uh, Delhi, India today. So if you think about the world's most polluted cities in the, uh, in the world today, they looked like London in 1800. And increasingly, there have been research linking air pollution uh, to Parkinson, Parkinson disease. So I think what Dr. Parkinson was seeing in 1817 London was the manifestation of long-term ex uh, chronic exposure to high levels of air pollution that might have been contributing to the Parkinson disease he saw in the individuals he wrote about in his essay. So it sounds like it um, being it's either well-established or on its way to be well-established that Parkinson's is one of the diseases we've created because of how we poisoned our environment. Yeah, in so uh, exactly. And what we describe in the book is that this is a man-made disease. And what we mean by man-made diseases, we mean that we society have created these diseases, that they didn't exist before. And the easy example um, is uh, lung cancer. So if you looked at lung cancer deaths in uh, 100 years ago in the United States, there were almost no lung cancer deaths in the United States, almost none. It just didn't exist. It was so rare that the doctors and medical students would gather around when they saw a case thinking it was a once-in-a-lifetime oddity that they would never see the case again. Uh, unfortunately, we know that they were wrong because 25 years after cigarettes were introduced in the United States in the early 1900s, we saw a corresponding rise in the rates of lung cancer, and today lung cancer is the leading cause of death due to cancer, both in the United States and around the world. But if we got rid of smoking, we would get rid of the vast, vast majority of uh, lung cancer. And the same thing um, is likely true for Parkinson's disease. You could do the, even the same thing has been found for acne. Uh, so I one time asked one of my friends, a dermatologist, you know, why do we get acne? What would be the purpose of that. And she goes, um, it may be a disease of Western civilization. And some researchers looked at hunter-gatherer populations in Papua New Guinea and in Paraguay, and they looked at hundreds if not thousands of individuals, including teenagers, and they didn't find a single blackhead, no cases of acne, even though in the United States, three-quarters of teenagers experience acne, likely due to diet-related factors. So if lung cancer, if acne can be a man-made disease, why can't other diseases, including brain diseases like Parkinson's disease, be man-made? And then more promising, why can't they be prevented? Why can't we live in a world free of Parkinson's disease, free of lung cancer, free of acne? And I think all these things are actually re readily achievable if we desire if we desire to do so. I'm just I'm just chuckling. It's like going to Paraguay to find hunter gatherers to show that diet and environment can mess up your skin. <laughs> it's like, duh. <laughs> hey, I'm sure they've got a lot of grants for that one. <laughs> what can I say? Um, anyway, um, let's go and let's kind of break this conversation into a couple of parts. Let's talk about some of the known environmental toxins and how they are damaging the gut and. Um, the nose, the sense of smell, and then let's talk about uh, um, the impact of, uh, and how that is compromising the body. And, and, you know, I don't know if you, you know, you probably have gotten into the role of the mitochondria, which I'm really fascinated by, supporting mitochondria function um, for healing. If, if that's in your realm, I'm not sure. Yeah. But if it is, we'll talk about it. And then, um, and then let's talk about some of the solutions. Perfect. And so, how 
So um, the mitochondria is the heart of a, might be the heart of a reason for people having Parkinson's disease. So uh, as you know, the brain is only about 3% of your body's weight, but it consumes 20% of your body's energy. So basically it's the energy guzzling uh, part of your body. Um, and if the, the cells that are guzzling the most energy are your nerve cells or neurons. And it turns out that the nerve cells that are damaged in Parkinson's disease have enormous energy demands. They have connections to a million different other nerve cells. And if you stretched out one of these nerve cells that produces a chemical called dopamine, stretched out from one end to the other end, it would be four meters in length, you know, twice as uh, tall as Kobe Bryant. Um, and these things are not well insulated. So they are chock full of mitochondria. The visual I like to give is imagine a nerve cell like a big garbage bag, and inside that garbage bag are tons and tons of jelly beans. And those jelly beans are mitochondria, which are responsible for converting glucose sugar uh, into energy. And all the three toxicants I told you about, air pollution, certain pesticides, and these dry cleaning chemicals, all of them are known to damage the energy-producing parts of cells. And even the rare genetic causes of Parkinson's disease are all known largely known to um, damage the energy-producing parts of cells. So one of the classic features of Parkinson's disease is dysfunction or impairment of mitochondria uh, in the brain. And wouldn't you say that um, it's a, it's, um, Parkinson's is one way that that damage is manifested, but it can, that the destruction of the mitochondria from toxic exposure, from stress, from, you know, life, um, actually can contribute to many other diseases, including, um, you know, all forms of cognitive, dis um, cognitive problems, um, Alzheimer's, um, ALS, and I don't know, so many other, so many issues across the board. Yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, my expertise is in, in Parkinson's disease, but uh, air pollution is strongly linked uh, to Alzheimer's disease. Certain pesticides and the dry cleaning chemicals are linked to ALS. If you think about ALS, what's damaged in ALS are also nerve cells. Um, they include nerve cells that go from your brain all the way down to your uh, mid, like to your your spine around your ribs. And then it goes from your one nerve cell will go from your lower back all the way down to your toe. Um, and so you can imagine these nerve cells, which are a meter in length without being stretched out, are also very, very dependent on mitochondria uh, for their survival. And so toxicants that damage those mitochondria might not just be implicated in Parkinson's, but in a wide range of other neurological disorders, and if you look beyond neurology, it's likely that there are other, but we know that there are other diseases that are also implicated by mitochondrial dysfunction, unless I'm a neurologist, so I tend to focus on brain diseases, uh, but there are other diseases, including diseases of the muscle and the heart that can be affected by mitochondrial dysfunction. Yeah, yeah, I, I've been really um, uh, delving into the mitochondria story and ways to support and regenerate mitochondria. So I think that's probably going to be a, a growing area in the in the world of preventing so many of these chronic debilitating illnesses. Um, but let's go back to let's go back to the environmental factors. So um, exposure to specific chemicals or a range of chemicals um, in the environment. I mean, we can we can talk about pesticides. Why don't we start there? I know, and then the dry cleaning. Um, chemicals. Uh, let me just ask you: Is are, 
is dry cleaning going out of fashion? Because I never dry clean anymore. <laughs> so well, I can't, I, if I can't wash it, I don't buy it. <laughs> yeah, so I think we're paying a really high price so our clothes don't shrink. Um, and so the reason we have dry cleaning is because water shrink clothes. And so for over 100 years, we've been developing chemicals that don't shrink clothes. In the early 1900s, we used kerosene and other petroleum-based products, and they worked well enough. They had a bad smell, and they had the unfortunate thing of being flammable, so that wasn't very safe. And then so these dry cleaning chemicals, the ones that are used today, trichloroethylene and this other one called perchloroethylene, they have really long names. It's much easier just call them TCE and PCE. And they're really actually very simple chemicals. Your listeners know that water is just three atoms. It's two hydrogens and an oxygen, H2O. TCE is just six atoms, two carbons, one hydrogen, and three chlorine atoms, hence its name trichloroethylene. And perchloroethylene just has four carbon and four chlorine atoms, and hence its name per. Per just means four. I think they're Greek or Latin. Um, and so, um, Yes, dry cleaning might be go, going out of fashion, but there are numerous – first of all, these gases are, damaged, are dangerous to people who work with the chemical, and they can even be released from the clothes that you, per, you get at a dry cleaner. So if you take your dry cleaning from the dry cleaner and you put it in your car, you will soon be breathing in these gases in your car. Um, if you live above a dry cleaner like in New York City where there are you know, dry cleaners on the bottom floor of apartment buildings, you'll have those dry cleaning chemicals in your indoor air. And because these chemicals dissolve in fat, if you open your refrigerator and you look in the butter and margarine, you'll find those chemicals in your butter and your margarine um, in your apartments or in your grocery stores. So these chemicals are really, really uh, quite uh, dangerous. The EPA um, in the last seven, eight months has found that both these chemicals, TCE and PCE, pose an, a, quote, unreasonable risk to human health, and the EPA has proposed banning all commercial uses of PCE, including in dry cleaning, over the next 10 years. California, I think, is the only state that right now that's working to phase out PCE in advance of the federal government. These chemicals are associated with a 500% increased risk of Parkinson's disease, 500% increased risk of Parkinson's disease, and that might only be one of the lesser uh, health risk associated with it because TCE is known to cause cancer and PCE perchloroethylene is a likely carcinogen. You know, I, I um, would always remind people if they're getting their clothes dry clean, take them outside, air them out, but so many yeah. people get their get their clothes, put it into the closet, right, right from the dry cleaners, and yeah. then it just permeates their entire home and especially the bedroom. Yes, uh, exactly. And so um, the other thing is there are safer alternatives um, to uh, perchloroethylene, which is still widely used in dry cleaning. If you see dry cleaners with a green leaf, that's usually indicating that they're not using PCE. You can ask mm -hmm. them if they are. Um, but um, I, I, I don't get my – I don't – I go to use a dry cleaner that doesn't use uh, those chemicals, um, and that's for that reason. Yeah. Where else are those chemicals used? Yeah, so um, in the 1970s, 600 million pounds of these chemicals uh, were used in the United States. That's two pounds per person. It was found in everything from typewriter correction fluid to decaffeinated coffee to carpet cleaners to gun cleaners used in printing and painting. It's estimated that 10 million Americans worked with the chemical, widely used in degreasing mechanics, 
widely used on military bases, especially in the Air Force. Um, many Air Force, many military bases, including the Marine Base Camp Lejeune in North Carolina, were contaminated um, with these chemicals. And if you didn't work with it, um, you might be drinking it. So up to 30% of groundwater in the United States is contaminated with TCE. Um, and as I think I indicated earlier, one-third of American cities in the 1980s had TCE um, in their drinking water. Um, and then finally, like radon evaporates from the soil and can enter your home, your basement, and cause lung cancer, TCE and PCE can uh, evaporate from contaminated soil and groundwater into your home, your school, or your workplace, and likely increase your risk of Parkinson's disease and potentially cause cancer, and you wouldn't ever know it. It's so depressing. <laughs> Think how it has permeated. And uh, so it's still in use everywhere in the moment, right? Yeah, so um, most Western European nations have banned TCE, uh, but um, United States, the use has peaked in the in the 1970s, but it's still used today. It's still permitted to be used for spot dry cleaning and for something called vapor degreasing, which is when they heat up the TCE and use it to, like, melt away grease. And then there are numerous contaminated sites throughout the country, half of the most toxic sites throughout the United States called Superfund sites, are contaminated with this chemical. And just in Rochester, New York, where I live, there are 12 dry cleaners that have been identified by the New York's equivalent of the EPA as contaminated with either TCE or PCE. And it's likely in Rochester, New York, there are kids breathing in TCE and PCE uh, in their homes from some contaminated sites. That's known to be uh, almost certainly occurring in Newport Beach, California, where I went to high school we're one of the largest residential contaminations of uh, TCE and PCE in the entire country. Is underneath the homes of multi-million dollar homes uh, right near the Pacific Ocean and where they found these chemicals in the indoor air of people's bedrooms, as you indicated earlier, in their living rooms, and even in kids' playrooms. Yeah, that's so shocking, you know, to, to realize the degree of contamination that's permeated our, you know, our life. And that's just one chemical. Let's talk about the, the pesticides like glyphosate or, or, you know, others that are uh, widely used. Yeah, so I think for, for urban areas, I think TCE and PCE and uh, likely air pollution, although air pollution uh, – but for the recent uh, California, the wildfires in Canada, air pollution in the United States is better than it has been in the past. Anyone who wants to see what we can do is just think about what Los Angeles looked like in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, and how much cleaner the air in Los Angeles is today. But if you live in rural areas, I think the big risk factor for Parkinson's disease are certain pesticides. And the poster child for these is a pesticide called Paraquat. Um, it's considered the most toxic weed killer ever uh, created. It kills the weeds that Roundup can't. It's been used to commit homicide and suicide, and over 30 countries, including China, have banned it, but the United States has not. In fact, according to the most recent data available uh, from the federal government, the use of Paraquat has more than doubled uh, over the last five years. It's found in, on throughout farms uh, throughout the United States, especially found on crops like uh, corn, cotton, and even uh, vineyards that are used uh, for producing wine. 
Oh, well, that's a happy thought. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like, what an uphill battle you have, Ray, to um, try to get action on all these issues. Right? But we can, but, we know. can. Um, you know, think about what we've done just in our lifetimes. I alluded to uh, what we've done on air pollution in uh, in Southern California. In the 1960s, the governor of California said we should eliminate all unnecessary driving because of how bad the air pollution was in Los Angeles. Uh, that governor was Ronald Reagan. Um, think about what we've done in terms of pesticides. In 1962, Rachel Carson, a woman, wrote the mo probably the most influential book in, on the environment, uh, Silent Spring, in which she argued against the indiscriminate use of uh, pesticides, especially DDT. Eight years later, the Environmental Protection Agency was formed under President Richard Nixon. Um, you know, we've uh, closed the ozone layer from using CFCs. We've gotten rid of acid rain uh, by using scrubbers. We can do tons of things to make our air cleaner, our water cleaner, and our food cleaner. The only question is whether we have the political will to do so. And that political will has to come from people. Politicians respond to what they hear from the voters and from the public. And if they hear that people are tired of getting diseases like Parkinson's disease, like their kids dying from leukemia, they're getting tired of giving liver cancer, uh, kidney cancer, multiple myeloma, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and prostate cancer. They need to make their voices heard because all those diseases are linked to TCE, and a large portion of us have been exposed to it and never have never known about it. And that's what the key is in conversations like we're having. It's waking people up to what's been going on, that most people probably are having exposure in their house even as we speak or in their in their gardens even as we speak. So this is a, a huge wake-up call. And, um, it, you know, you don't want to have a wake-up call after you have a diagnosis, right? <laughs> you exactly. want to be proactive. Proactive. So let's talk about other other things that are heavy metals that are – look, it would seem to me, and I'll just jump in, um, anything that can damage the gut and impair the functioning of the gut and, and destroy the healthy gut microbiome can potentially lead to a variety of these, of these chronic illnesses down the track. Is, is, that, is that a true statement? Yeah, so I, I'm, not the, I'm not the world's uh, expert on the gut. Uh, I can say that we know that the – the microbiome, the bacteria that live in the gut with people with Parkinson's is different from those without it. Um, I tend to think that that might be a consequence of exposure to these environmental toxic, toxicants as opposed to yeah. the actual cause itself. So I think when we see abnormalities or changes in the gut microbiome, we should be asking, why did that occur? And I think if we start asking why that occurs, we get to uh, some answers around environmental toxicants at least. Uh, for uh, Parkinson's disease. And as you mentioned earlier, the real common thread for all these environmental toxicants for Parkinson's disease is that they all damage the energy-producing parts of cells. And the nerve cells in the brain that are damaged in Parkinson's are especially vulnerable to damage to these um, mitochondria. Yes. So, um, right. So, you know, basically, human bodies were not designed to have optimal health from exposure to uh, the, to these variety of toxic chemicals exactly. in the environment. We're incompatible, <laughs> you know? Yes, and, and these chemicals, these exposures are relatively new. If you think about humans have been around for 200,000 years, you know, uh, man-made 
synthetic pesticides have been around for about 80. Uh, TCE has been around for 100 years. I think four generations of causing cancer is enough. Um, but, you know, we have not been designed or selected for uh, to uh, be immune to the toxic effects of these environmental toxicants, which are relatively new. And if you take a step back and if you look at the rates of Parkinson's disease, they are highest in the industrialized parts of the world, like the U.S. and Canada. They're lowest in the least industrialized parts of the world, like sub-Saharan Africa. And they're growing most rapidly in the most rapid industrializing parts of the world, like India and China. Um, so we have lots of clues to what's telling us what are the likely causes of Parkinson's disease. We just need to be proactive and take action so we, that we can create a world where Parkinson's disease is increasingly rare, not increasingly common. Well, as you so eloquently expressed, it's like a blinding flash of the obvious of why we have this increase in these diseases. You know, and it's unnecessary. Diseases. Yeah. So so what, uh, you know, I know you are specializing, you're a doctor specializing in Parkinson's, and I'm sure, you know, you have a protocol, pharmaceutical protocol. <laughs> um, I'm, you know, want to talk about that. And let's talk about, but I, what I really want to talk about is what, from your perspective, helps to um, regenerate the mitochondria, because I think that is such a forefront of medicine these days. Yeah, so re yeah regenerating things is, uh, is hard, but I'll give you some ideas, and I'll talk to you about some very practical things that any your listeners can do to decrease their risk of exposure to these toxicants. Uh, it turns out that exercise might be really, really, really uh, beneficial for uh, restoring or improving a mitochondrial dysfunction. Uh, my colleague and co-author, Dr. Boss Bloom, has done recent research when he's with people with Parkinson's disease and using sophisticated imaging techniques suggesting that exercise might protect um, the dying nerve cells and uh, protect them. Uh, we know that exercise releases growth factors in the brain that may be able to protect the remaining nerve cells um, so that the nerve cells that have survived the exposure to these toxicants can continue to do so and function at a high level. So for everyone, all your listeners should uh, be exercising because vigorous exercise in your 40s, 50s, and 60s may lower your risk of Parkinson's disease by about 20%. And for people who already have Parkinson's disease, uh, exercise is an incredibly valuable uh, therapy uh, Peter Atia, the uh, author of Outlive, you know, says that exercise is a super drug uh, for the body, and I think he's exactly right. In addition to uh, restoring mitochondrial function, um, there are lots wait, of things. Wait, wait, wait. Can, sure. can, can I just stop you there? Exercise yeah. is a very, it's a very generic term. Mm. I mean, can you break that down to what specific kinds of exercise, or doesn't it matter just getting out, bicycling, walking, anything? It seems, it seems, uh, most studies have looked at a wide range of exercises for people with the disease and it's found everything from ballroom dancing to yoga to running, um, might be beneficial for people with Parkinson's disease. But it suggests that research around prevention, like never getting the disease in the first place and increasing the evidence around people with the disease, it suggests that it's vigorous exercise, enough to get your heart rate up and enough for you to break a sweat, assuming that you're healthy enough to do so. So the study that linked uh, exercise to a, in your 40s, 50s, and 60s to a lower rate of ever developing Parkinson's disease looked at people who ran or swam the equivalent of three and a half to four hours a, a week. Mm -hmm. Okay. I routinely that's, that's recommend 
I routinely recommend everyone with Parkinson's exercise at least an hour a day, and I say that if I had Parkinson's, I would exercise two hours a day. Now, granted, that might be hard to do for some individuals, but that's the type of thing that we should be thinking about doing. Okay. Okay, good. All right. So, um, okay, so moving on from exercise, what's next on so there's some easy things people can do to decrease their risk of these toxicants in the food they eat, the water they drink, and the air they breathe. So first with food, um, before I wrote the book, I thought the food, air, and water were all safe. Uh, I no longer think that's the case. So I uh, overwhelmingly buy organic uh, produce. Now I'm fortunate I'm a physician, so I have resources to do that. But regardless of whether you buy organic or not, you should wash all your fruits and vegetables, not only with water, but also with a, a, a fruit or vegetable wash, which is essentially nothing much more than soap. Uh, so I have a big glass bowl, and I put all my fruits and vegetables um, in that. I wash it with water and a little bit of um, uh, vegetable wash, which I get from Trader Joe's. So it's like $4 for a bottle that lasts uh, many months. And that's to remove both water-soluble pesticides and pesticides that dissolve in fat because those are the ones that might get into the brain. Uh, so you want to wash those off. On the waterfront, uh, an easy thing people can do, uh, almost everyone should be thinking about a carbon filter uh, for their water. So this is like things you can get from Brita or Pure or whatever it is, and you can put it out in your faucet. That helps reduce your exposure to both pesticides and these uh, dry cleaning chemicals such as TCE. If you're one of the up to 40 million Americans who get their water from a well, so you don't get your water from city water, but you get a, your water from a well, often in rural areas, you should make sure to have that well tested. Many of those wells are susceptible to, in rural areas to wash off of pesticides, and so you could be drinking pesticide-contaminated well water, which we know is associated with a 75% increased risk of developing Parkinson's disease. Unfortunately, that exposure could have happened when you were a child. It could have even happened in utero. But uh, right now, you should minimize your any future exposure you have by testing your uh, well. And then for air, there's some easy things that you can do on air. I, I would I would just add uh, people who who are collecting their water from rain. Do they also need to um, test their collection? <laughs> You know, I, I have not been asked that question. I think it would depend on where you're collecting your rain from. If you're in uh, in an area of the country or area of the it's world, really that's popular in it's really Australia. popular in Australia. Yeah, so area. I think you probably would be safe. But if you were in an industrial area, I would probably be a little more circumspect. Or if you were in an area that had lots of pesticides being sprayed, I might be circumspect. But I, I've never been asked that question. I've never done a deep dive. Uh, into it, so I can't give you a great answer. Oh, nothing like new input. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. Um, and and finally, on air, there are some easy things people can do. One, you should think about where you live. Um, we know for people with Parkinson's disease and, and for Alzheimer's disease, recent research suggests that high levels of air pollution, like that which we experienced in New York City from the Canadian wildfires, is associated with an increased risk of uh, hospitalization. We even know from studies done throughout the United States that women in their 70s who are exposed to high levels of air pollution, live in areas with high degrees of air pollution, uh, have an increased risk for cognitive impairment, decline in their thinking abilities over five to ten years compared to people who live in uh, areas of the country with cleaner air. So think about where you live, where you want to retire. 
If you live in a heavily polluted area, you can think about staying inside, although I hate saying that because it's healthy to be outside. But staying inside on the most polluted areas, you can think about even wearing a mask, which is what people in Los Angeles did in the 50s and 60s to protect themselves from the toxic effects of air pollution. Um, my parents live in Southern California. I've uh, told them both to get air purifiers um, for their to put next to themselves in their bedrooms and their kitchen where they spend large portions of time to decrease their exposure to indoor air pollution that might be coming from the outside. Um, and then if you drive through heavily polluted traffic, you should close your windows and, you know, hit that button on your uh, dashboard that recirculates the air so you're not drawing in air, uh, toxic air, when you're driving through tunnels like going into New York City, for example. I remember those trips through the tunnels into New York City. The Lincoln Tunnel. <laughs> I always wanted to hold my breath. <laughs> that was a wise <laughs> move. Long enough. <laughs> um, I have a question. Have your parents listened to you? Did they put in air purifiers? Yeah, so my uh, kids got my dad the uh, air purifiers for for for, uh, for Christmas, and uh, um, my mom has uh, air purifiers in her bedroom and in her uh, kitchen. Yeah. So what about detoxifying these uh, toxic exposures? Have you... You know, is that an area that you have delved into in your work? Yeah, so you, as you alluded to, you know, are there supplements that can be used that uh, help restore mitochondrial function? And so the, the supplement that's been best studied in Parkinson's disease is coenzyme Q10. Early studies suggested some promise uh, for it, but a very large uh, phase three uh, clinical trial found that uh, coenzyme Q10 did not offer benefit for people uh, with Parkinson's disease. There have been studies looking at chelation therapy, um, hitchhiking on those tiny pieces of dirt and soot that you see when you look uh, when you look in Los Angeles or when you look when you can see air pollution, you're seeing little pieces of dirt and, and soot. And hitchhiking on that pieces of dirt and soot are heavy metals, often iron from brakes, lead from leaded gasoline, platinum from catalytic converters. And people with Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease have elevated levels of heavy metals in their brain. And we're not exactly sure why, but it could be that air pollution is a factor in bringing those heavy metals into the brain. And so there was a recent study done in the New England Journal of Medicine, published in the New England Journal of Medicine, that looked at a, a chelation therapy that was thought to take iron out of the brain. And it looked like it succeeded in taking iron out of the brain, but unfortunately it made people's Parkinson's disease worse. People were taking the chelation therapy did worse than people taking the sugar pill or the placebo. Um, so unfortunately, we don't have any evidence really right now, or we have good evidence that chelation therapy, at least that drug, does not work. And so we don't have anything that we can do to remove these toxicants uh, from the body that we know of uh, today in 2023. But we can prevent ongoing exposure, which might, you know, just like I always tell people, what's the first thing a doctor's going to tell you if you got diagnosed with lung cancer is to stop smoking. And so the first thing you should do if you get diagnosed with Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's disease is decrease your exposure to the environmental toxicants. And if you're fortunate, not, fortunate enough to not have these diseases, you should seek to minimize your exposure. Right. Um, uh, and if we talk about the mitochondria, there's, you know, there's like I was saying, <clears throat> there's so much interest in mitochondria and all these people who call themselves body hackers are really um, – exploring how to um, enhance mitochondrial function. Um, so there's 
you know, there's some areas that I've been looking into, but, um, you know, one of the things that seems to really help the mitochondria that's simple to do is uh, getting out in the sunlight, especially around sunrise, and getting those um, full range of healing, the spectrum of frequencies into the into the brain. And, uh, the, you know, that seems to increase nitric oxide, and there's a huge um, belief that that's really important for mitochondria production. Any thoughts on that? Well, I don't know, um, but I'd say being outside is enormously powerful and beneficial to your health. Uh, I tell my kids, and we'll see if they listen, the three important things you can do to improve your overall health is to be outside, to be physically active, and to be around people. And I think we need to do all three of those things, be outside, be physically active, and be around people, and we can all live longer and healthier lives, freer of many of the diseases that are plaguing many millions of people. Yeah, you know, I, I think this is such a wake-up call, isn't it? And, uh, has it been a wake-up call for you to do this research, to do this deep dive? Entirely. I, you know, as I said before, uh, I wrote the book, I, I used to think water, food, and air in the United States were, was safe, and unfortunately I don't think that's the case uh, anymore. I've changed my practices uh, since uh, writing the book. I, I also think we need to call out that the most many of the people who are doing this research are women, and I think our, our research community may not be paying quite as much of attention to the work that women have done in the field. I mentioned Dr. Caroline Tanner, Dr. Beata Ritz in, uh, at UCLA has been doing a lot of work, great work on air pollution for decades. Um, another one of my colleagues, Dr. Brianna D. Miranda at University of Alabama, Birmingham, is doing great work looking at these uh, dry cleaning chemicals and showing that they reproduce the pathological features of Parkinson's disease in laboratory animals. They develop the same disease, Parkinson's disease, that humans are likely developing as a consequence of this exposure. So there's lots and lots of research uh, being done out there, men, much of it by women that we need to be paying a lot more attention to. So um, uh, the the question that comes up to me uh, in your experience, I know you have talked about people living well with Parkinson's. Have you come across people who've healed themselves of Parkinson's disease? I don't know if we can heal or cure themselves. I mean, people can function at really, really, really high levels, and I've had patients of mine who just through exercise uh, without taking any medicines have lived uh, productive lives. Uh, I'm thinking of one person I think who used to work as a scientist at the National Institutes of Health. <laughs> he was very circumspect about medications, and I think at least for short periods of time uh, people can. I have another patient who's a veteran uh, who also has tried medicines and they haven't worked well for him, and he treats the disease uh, purely uh, through uh, exercise. Now, those are the exceptions and not the rule, and I think a little bit of um, a medication, there's a, the most effective medication is a drug called levodopa, which replaces the dopamine that's lost in the brain, but I think a combination of vigorous exercise, avoiding exposure to these environmental toxicants, you know, think about what you're spraying on your yards, um, and then uh, a lot of exercise can allow people with Parkinson's disease to live very productive lives uh, for a period of time. Well, that's the encouraging news. Well, it's you know it's the good news and the bad news and the good news. It's the bad news is that we've created uh, the breakdown of the body's ability to function, the destruction of the mitochondria through all these toxic exposures. And you know, as you were stating earlier, how slow the United States is and probably other Western countries. Well, although you said 
Europe is also banning a lot of these uh, chemicals. But basically, the United States is so slow. There's so many vested interests in producing chemicals. And, um, you know, we've paid the price. It's a terrible price to pay, actually. Yeah, and we shouldn't be for paying us. for it. And the people who should be paying for it are the people producing the chemicals. You know, they should not be privatizing the gains and socializing the losses on the lives of uh, people with the disease. If you look at just the economic burden of Parkinson's disease, just to Medicare alone is $25 billion per year. And that's what taxpayers are paying, I think, for the consequences of air pollution, certain pesticides, and, industri- and uh, dry cleaning chemicals. And the people who should be paying for that are the people who are producing the chemicals, not the people who bear the disease, and not taxpayers. So has this made you more political, kind of? The research you've done and seen just with those statistics in itself? Well, I, I, I think the, the only way we get change is uh, political action. So I, I live in Rochester, New York, uh, which is home for Susan B. Anthony, who uh, was a, a not very compromising woman who uh, changed the course of uh, women's rights and led to women developing, getting the right to vote in 1920. Uh, the other person who used to live in Rochester is Frederick Douglass uh, after he escaped uh, slavery. Um, he came to Rochester, New York, and wrote a newspaper. It was actually friends and colleagues with uh, Susan B. Anthony and, you know, changed our view on slavery and on the rights of uh, all Americans. And so I happen to live in a very progressive uh, environment, and um, we can see what these progressive movements have. If you think about National Parks and Teddy Roosevelt, I mean, there are lots and lots of examples where we can make huge amounts of uh, change in short periods of time, but it only happens when people who are most directly affected by these diseases, most directly affected by these causes, um, make their voices heard. It's no coincidence that the women's suffrage movement was led by uh, women. It's no coincidence that a lot of the early work on abolitionists was led by black men uh, and women. Um, and it's no coincidence that many diseases that we've changed, if you think about polio and the March of Dimes, if you think about HIV uh, and the HIV activists, if you think about uh, drunk driving and mothers against drunk driving, these individuals, when they make their voices heard, when they engage in political action, we see enormous changes can happen in relatively short periods of time. And all of us, all of us are therefore beneficiaries of it. And we've received these gifts in the past. We've received the gift of a world largely free of polio. We've received the gift of a world where HIV is both preventable and treatable. And we've received the gift where drinking and driving is socially unacceptable. And just like we have an obligation to receive gifts, we have an obligation to reciprocate. And so I can think of few better things that a neurologist can do than to help create a world where Parkinson's disease is increasingly rare, where future generations do not have to bear the burden of this debilitating and deadly disease. Yeah, you know, Ray, I, you know, I just want to acknowledge you. I really hear the passion in your, in your, in your heart around this issue. Um, is your message getting out to other uh, colleagues and, and uh, you know, medical professionals? You know, I think doctors aren't the most receptive individuals to new ideas. Um, There are lots of great examples where, like, things like uh, Joseph Lister developed antiseptic technique and was uh, viewed with great suspicion um, when he developed it. So I don't think um, the message might be a little bit harder to resonate uh, among my colleagues, but I think among those people most directly affected by the disease, 
I think they see that themselves. They say, hey, I grew up around pesticides. Hey, um, my husband worked with these uh, chemicals. Hey, uh, there are people in my community who, kids in my community who got leukemia. Why did that happen? So I think it resonates among that. Um, uh, I love, I'm really appreciative of your time. If your listeners want a copy of our book, it's called Ending Parkinson's Disease. If they can't afford it, they can just email me at info at endingpd.org, and we'll send them a free copy. So if your listeners can't afford a copy of our book, Ending Parkinson's Disease, it's written in English. It's written for a lay public. There's not much in technical language in, it, in there. They can just email me at info at endingpd.org, and we'll send them a copy. Just let us know. Uh, there, just make sure to include your mailing address uh, so we can send it to you. That's amazing. That's a, that's really amazing, Ray. I, you know, that you know is evidence of this passion that you have. And and the website again is endingpd.org. Endingpd for Parkinson's disease. Correct. Yeah, and endingpd.org is our website. If you want to email me, if you want a free copy of the book, or if you have a question, or you have a story, you got exposed to these chemicals or these pesticides. I'd love to hear your stories info at endingpd.org. If you do have uh, means, uh, please buy the book or get it from the library. All the authors are donating all of our proceeds to efforts to prevent and ending uh, Parkinson's disease. The book's available on Amazon. It's in library in libraries. Uh, and again, all the authors are donating all of our proceeds uh, to efforts to prevent and end this uh, terrible disease. Well, you've taken on this, you know, important mission in life and um I, you know, I'm just so grateful to meet people like you, Ray, with your credentials, but um, with your mission. You know, you have this really important mission to stop the suffering, and you see it every day as a, as a clinician in your practice, right? You see people have devastating a diagnosis of Parkinson's. Yeah, and uh, now when I see people with Parkinson's, I get pissed off. Um, because I don't think it's necessary that they have this disease. I think for the vast majority of people, this is a preventable disease. Uh, and who wants to spend the last 15 of their 20 years of their life with a disease that's robbing them of their independence? Who wants to spend their golden years caring for someone with a debilitating disease and watching them uh, suffer? There are much better ways that all of us can be spending our time in our lives uh, than suffering with preventable diseases. Well, I guess that's a good note to end our conversation on since we've come to the end of the show. Perfect timing. Uh, you know, I, I, the most important thing uh, that your book is providing people is not only an understanding, but getting, you know, deeper. I'm sure everyone has questions. Why did this happen to me? You know, why me? What what went on? And this is what you have been, you know, dedicated to in researching and in your book, Ending uh, Parkinson's Disease, is the place that everyone needs to go to understand not only if you're dealing with these symptoms, but to prevent this disease and other diseases caused by environmental exposures as well. So, uh, Ray, thank you so much, really, from the bottom of my heart to you and your passion and your mission in life and uh, saving so many people's lives and giving hope. Thank you very much, Cheryl, and thank you again for all your work that you're doing to empowering women and to improving their health and in the health of uh, all of us. You're so welcome, and uh, yeah, all the best to you, and uh, I'm right behind you doing my best to get the message out there, saving lives, transforming lives. So again, thank you. This is a great conversation with Dr. Ray Dorsey, author of Ending Parkinson's Disease, A Prescription for Action, endingpg.org 
or contact him directly. What's your email address? One more it's time. Info uh, at endingpd.org. Okay, and I'll put that in the notes too. Info at endingpd.org. So thank you all for uh, listening once again to What Women Must Know. I'm here every week, and I look forward to returning again with more empowering conversations. And until next time, as I always like to say, honor the wisdom of your feminine self. Bye for now.